welcome to Parents Just Don't Understand. I'm Kurt Schiller, and tonight we are going to be discussing the His Dark Materials series by Philip Pullman, which has been a wildly popular series of young adult books, an enormous 2007 movie flop, and now a uh, new TV series on HBO. And joining me tonight are two special guests. Over on Microphone One, we have the host of the leftist social and political podcast, Unpopular Front, uh, Ben Udishin. And welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, thank you so much for have, having me, Kurt. This is uh, exciting to enter the uh, cultural space. I don't want to give any... There's like so many ways I could like accidentally do a spoiler for this show. So I'm trying really hard to not to do it. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll get to the spoilers in a minute, but suffice to say, uh, I, I you know I don't think we we need to be uh, hardline anti spoiler people here, but we'll 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 get to that. We'll get Good. to that. That's that's um, one of the core demands of the unpopular front manifesto. So, free spoilers for all. Is that is that <laughs> absolutely absolutely. Uh, so over on Microphone 2, we are joined by sci-fi and fantasy author and all-around cool guy, Carlo Yeager Rodriguez. Carlo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Um, I was going to say that uh, you're taking me back. Uh, it, it feels like 90s kids would only understand. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Only 90s kids and uh, 30-year-old fans of uh, prestige television will understand. Sha, for sha. This is for all ages. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and you know, that's, that's very true, as we will find out in a moment. But uh, spoilers have already been raised, so um, I wanted to address that right off the front since... Uh, His Dark Materials, the, the series, uh, constitutes three books by uh, the British author Philip Pullman. And um, there are definitely some big um, reveals that happen throughout it. And uh, one of the challenges of talking about the series is that, you know, because it exists in multiple forms, um, each of them kind of approaches the plot differently. And so, for instance, something that is a big reveal uh, in the books, um, has already kind of been addressed in the very beginning of the new HBO TV show. Um, yeah, so um, I, I think, you know, for the most part, uh, we're going to keep this mostly spoiler-free, but if you're the sort of person who um, considers everything to be a spoiler or any kind of plot details to be a spoiler, um, you know, we're, we're not going to go out of our way to reveal kind of big twists that happen. But uh, if you're very concerned about going in cold, which I, I do think for this series is maybe an argument for, uh, you, you might want to just skip this one or better just go read the books and then uh, come back uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's worth it, I think. But um, anything that's been covered in the first, let's say, two episodes of the TV series, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say is uh, fair game. For anyone not familiar with the series, uh, like I said, it was uh, created first published in uh, the, the the first book, Northern Lights, came out in uh, 1995 uh, by the British author Philip Pullman. And I guess at its core, it's about a young girl named Lyra Balakwa who goes on a journey to the frozen north in search of her best friend Roger and winds up uh, uncovering some mysteries about the nature of religion and science and really kind of like the universe. Yeah. Um, and it takes place in a sort of 
Victorian electropunk setting, and then uh, a whole lot of pretty wild stuff happens, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I like that you note that it's electropunk and not steampunk, because I do feel like steampunk has maybe been a little played out over the past decade, but it's different. Don't be afraid, people. Yeah, it's not it's not like a it's it's not the the thing that you think of when you think of like steampunk. It's not like top hats, monocles, um, you know, corsets and, and and stuff. It's much more like a like mostly realistic um like Victorian or like Edwardian almost uh, yeah. era. Yeah, it it and it it feels and this is like a big theme in the show. It in in that it's a world like our world, right? And they really, it's really close, but like you can't exactly tell like the time period this is taking place in. But I feel like that's sort of it's like it feels otherworldly, but it still feels like us. I don't like when I started to watch it. I didn't. I don't know. It just it struck me as like there's much more of like a dreamlike kind of sense of this world than maybe I experienced when I um, read it the first first time. I don't know. Maybe it's just like because you see it from like a child's perspective. Yeah, I, I think that the, the the depiction of the setting in, in the TV series is definitely a bit different than the books. Um, yeah. I, I feel like the TV series leans very hard on the like late 20s art deco um you know big carved blocks of stone aesthetic and whereas the the book feels much closer to like age of exploration royal academy of science type type adventurer aesthetic it's definitely not quite the same Uh, i I think that you know some some of the early stuff in the that you see in the first episode of the tv series is maybe closer to what most of the book feels like whereas i'm definitely getting like like an atlas shrugged Yes. Um, you know, trains, big, oh, big like, brutalist yes. uh, architecture from from the, the TV series. I mean, I, I understand why they did that. Um, the I, I always feel like, um, and, and to Ben's point, that steampunk seems to have been, it's sort of like a well that's been sort of, uh, it's been sort of plumbed to its, to its logical you know, conclusion. It's not dry yet because there's still stuff out there. But what they did in the show, which is sort of smart, is they rolled that anachronism forward so that it's within the range of something that we can, you know, like as a viewer that knows nothing about the past, I can sort of relate with. It's like, these are cars, but these are cars that are sort of old, you know, it it felt disorienting to me because um, coming from the books, I was like, wait, there's a helicopter? Don't they have like dirigibles or zeppelins? It was just sort of uh, slightly disorienting, but it, 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 I think it works in the same sense that um, if you ever saw the, uh, the Netflix uh, series of unfortunate events series, yeah, yeah, I, I get it that. Yeah, that definitely. sort of same aesthetic, where it's sort of more towards like a nineteen late nineteen twenties, uh, but it still has, like you said, like early twentieth century, where they're still exploring the poles. 
you know, there's still expeditions being sent out to investigate, you know, like um, in, in this case, the Arctic and stuff like that. I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for the way that both the, uh, the the book series and the TV series kind of construct their setting. Um, and in some ways, I think that uh, the, the book series does it much more confidently uh, than the the TV series does, where the, the, the TV series definitely sort of feels like it's doing that thing where, you know, a character will, will like very conspicuously... Uh, be like, make sure you go get groceries from the store down where huh. the rebellion of 1912 happened. You remember? <laughs> oh yes, the one where the Red right. Army fought the White Army or something like. Right. Or the, the the as you know, Bob's. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Exactly. So I, I, um, since I, I'm sorry, I, I was just gonna jump on that real quick because the at the beginning of the show it starts exactly like that. And what I remembered, I actually jotted it down. It reminded me of the Dune movie. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah. I yeah, love yeah, the, the, the David Lynch one. Uh-huh. A full, like, five minutes of just straight-up exposition, and you're like, yeah. what is this, and why do I care yet? You haven't given me anything yet. Where he's, like, knocking on a door, and you're like... What scholastic sanctuary? What yeah, there was no, no, yeah, no con like context. All that you had, I guess, was just the big like text dump at the start, which I guess was just because like it would take so long to explain the whole demon thing, you know. But um, yeah, this like I having not read the book since I was like twelve, um, was like I was like. Right. I can't like I'm trying to place this scholastic, you know, like there's so many levels of it that even as someone who's read the books, I was like, oh, right. I have to get back into this world. Mm -hmm. I, I really feel like they they jumped the gun there. I, I really don't think that that the concept of the daemons is is as complicated as everyone seems to think it is. Like, I, I, mean, I think either. that if you show uh, everybody in the entire show having a little animal that follows around, follows them around and talks. Like you don't need to come right out and be like, "Oh, by the way, that's their soul. Like that's their external soul that follows them around." Just, just need to tell you this before you can understand. Like you're, you're going to be like, "Oh, everybody has a magic animal." Um, uh, so um, Ben, since you mentioned it, uh, we traditionally start. Um, by talking about how each person, each guest, uh, originally encountered, um, you know, the, the media in question. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to kind of start, I know we already jumped a little bit into the TV show, but or I wanted no. to yeah. start with uh, the, the, the books, which, you know, interesting tidbit, um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about them as young adult literature, and I think they're generally classified that way. Um, uh, according to, to, to Pullman, the author, he didn't write them intending for them to be to be YA. He just kind of wrote them and then I guess they were marketed as YA and so they're, they're typically considered that. But um do do you mind kind of kind of starting us off by I, you know just kind of you, you mentioned that you, you you haven't read this since you were you were like 12 or 13. So let's let's start there. Yeah. What how how was it reading yeah. this when you were 12 or 13? Okay, yeah. So the time that I read this was I think 
it's sort of intimately linked with the with the um, school that I was going to at that time period because my parents were PMC, you know, PMC Texas liberals. They sent me to a, a private Episcopal school, and I'm Jewish. I don't really have much of a connection to Christianity. So, and I'm also like, you know, I was, it was the late 90s, perfect time to be like a burgeoning, like annoying teen atheist. Um, and I had heard that this was sort of critical of the church, sort of as a construct. And I, I think I sort of got into it for that reason, honestly, like that aspect of it, which is present from the very start of the um of the uh, series, I think was really cool. And then also the like demons were really cool. It's like a fun idea to have like a creature that is representative of you. Like who hasn't thought of, I mean, I'm a, I'm a nanny. I work with kids. Like they're imagining stuff like that. They're imagining themselves as a, as a, as a bear or as a little weasel, like, like in the uh, show, you know? So it, it, it just sort of fits to me. It's a very sort of natural thing to um, be uh, attracted to. So that's kind of where I got into the um, series. Yeah, they they kind of do function as almost like a a agnostic slash atheist like Chronicles of Narnia in in some ways, especially as Bingo. the series goes on. Like <laughs> exactly, exactly, and so. A reason that that's a great prompt, actually, because a, the reason why I did that is because at this school in like fifth grade or sixth grade, it's it's so weird, right? I'm saying this for our English reading. We just read the entire Chronicles of Narnia series. Oh, my God. We read them in publication order. That's <laughs> what we did. So I read all those books, right? And I remember like getting to the end of that and there's like the God lion and, <laughs> you know, like you either go to the good place or the bad place, right? And I was just like, like, I don't know. I wasn't that anxious about it. I think it's just because like, I think I just was like cocky enough as a kid to where I was like, they'd say I go to the bad place, but I know I'm actually right. So I was like, this is stupid, you know? <laughs> so I think when I heard, yeah, that like I was probably at like a Borders Books or something, and I heard that there was like a Chronicles of Narnia-like series, but it sort of has a different approach around things like religion. And I mean, to me, I, I mean, the anti-authoritarianism in this book is like insanely high, you know? So it it it, it was sort of a good for a bird, burgeoning, um, annoying atheist leftist, so. Yeah, anti-authoritarian is is a really good way to, to put it because I, I, I think I think if, if you wanted to, like you could almost make the argument that this is not in any way and and an atheist you know tracked like it's it's oh. almost it's almost like uh, tends towards like quakerism almost in some ways like it's, yeah it's very, like it's very anti-disestablishmentarian i guess they're like we we don't you do not need this big uh bureaucratic church structure but like within within the world of of you know the the series without without delving in like like into spoilers like there is a, this supernatural thing that like it, that that exists that is in some way connected to the beliefs of 
of the church, but like the bureaucracy of the church and the structure of, of belief is, is a very oppressive regime. And it's funny that you, you mentioned going to like an Episcopal uh, private school because I also went to an Episcopal oh, yeah. private school. Um, and so what was your mass mascot? I really need to know. I have it. Our mascot was a Spartan. Um, and they, were, they were the Spartans. Yeah. And then I, I actually, I, I actually transferred, um, from an Episcopal private school to a, to a Catholic boys school where our mascot oh, was the yeah. hermit, uh, because we were <laughs> yeah. Augustinian school. Fucking Catholics. Y'all are ridiculous. Wait, you had a hermit? Yeah, the hermit <laughs> was that? the name of our of our team. And it was it was like a weird, like like bearded, like old guy with like a wooden club. I'm not kidding. It's very true. You yeah, can like, look it up online. Oh like hermits. Like the dude from like the tarot card, right? Just like Yeah, basically, yes. What Shover. a weird Well, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, it seems it just seems like very coincidental that well, this is this is what happened to the Spartan later on in life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Carlo, I, I know that we were talking before the show, and um, you mentioned that you were a little bit older when you when you first kind of encountered these these books, right? Yeah, yeah. I um, I was actually uh, was it, late twenties, early thirties, maybe. Um, or no, I'm sorry, not at all. Um, I, I I was working at a Borders, so that that gives you an idea of of when yeah when that was happening. Um, was and, Borders like pushing this book really hard? Because we've all mentioned maybe. Borders so far. <laughs> <laughs> I did go to a Borders book a lot. It's true. It, I was just uh, sort of that was like the best place for me to work because I uh, Puerto Rico was sadly lacking and you know big sort of like big bookstores like that. And, uh, you know, I, I would go to like these little sort of like local bookstores and they they might have like one shelf of like sci-fi and fantasy. So it was just sort of sad. And to have like a border show up and just have like an entire section be, you know, sci-fi and then also fantasy and it, you know like within the same section divided up was like oh my god so anyway that's that was just sort of like my i was working there and um i started reading the first one and i think i just immediately like fell right into it because it like like you said like it is sort of like a it's sufficiently like our like a historical fantasy but also with like weird little quirks like you mentioned electropunk and i almost jumped in and corrected you and said sir that's enbaric punk thank you <laughs> i really dislike the proliferation of of dash punks uh, oh, yeah. in, incidentally, yeah. it drives me it drives me bananas because oh, yeah. I, I, I it's it's like when people argue about like well I'm writing like uh, hard sci-fi versus soft sci-fi and this is like high soft sci-fi or like 
I'm writing fit. a hard sci-fi. Sci I'm writing a, a, a hard sci-fi book with the soft magic. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, these are all sort of um, like like we're 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 sort of laughing at these. These are uh, useful tools, uh, but more mostly they're marketing. Um, yeah. Totally. I, I think that there's more of a conversation now uh, amongst the newer writers that are coming out that that just simply like it's all fiction. All, all of fiction is a genre, including literary fiction. We shouldn't be fighting about it. This is just to figure out where to put it in the bookstore. Um, but but anyway, yeah, I, I agree that the the proliferation of punks is sort of it's it's definitely annoying. But I guess people want to have their labels, and um. uh, hopefully, this is not this was not marketed as any punk any type of punk that might have actually turned me off of it unless somebody had recommended it to me um and i remember just falling right into it mainly because it does have like all these little tiny things like the da the daemons the the fact that the daemons are um like like you said kurt it is immediately apparent like they don't give you any like philip pullman doesn't give you any like spoon-fed stuff he just you know, like you you're in the uh study or the retiring room with lyra as she's talking to pentalaman and he's changing around into a moth and then he turns into a little ermine or a weasel or whatever and Immediately you realize, okay, so this is like a familiar, and then you realize, oh, no, 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 this is like her, this is like a world where Jiminy Cricket exists for everyone. Right. And, uh, and also the tiny mystery that's never really, it's sort of left for you to interpret that all of the daemons are the opposite gender for their, I mean, obviously this is problematic now given the fact that there might be some gender essentialism in there, but right, the yeah. fact that they're, they're the opposite gender as the human sort of always made me think of that, um, the, is it in Plato where he has the, the, the thing about the hermaph hermaphroditic giants that we were always joined together and we were split at one point in the past and we're always trying to find each other. And that that's the fact that the the you know your male and female are split. That the like the construction of um, gender kind of as like a social thing almost does sort of create that sense of longing and that distance. And that is actually you know there's an interesting thing um, about the uh, the uh, demons demons on the show they call them demons, but to me whenever I hear that I just think of like a bad guy. But the but the demons are cute and cool, so. I mean, some of them are actually bad, but because the people are bad, which is what makes it cool is how bonded they are to the um, to the human and how it's sort of a way, I think, kind of to show sort of like sometimes like the sort of shadow of their uh, human. And it gives it also just like narratively, it gives them a chance to have internal dialogue done, mm -hmm. you know, live. And I think that that actually... You know, I was thinking about that when I watched this the second episode because I had seen that brought up somewhere, and it actually does kind of like give it a little bit. It 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 allows for you to kind of get in the head of Lyra 
a lot more than you maybe could. That's a really good point, um, because so often when you make these these translations from book to screen, you lose so much of that that internal monologue um, just because there's no, you know, unless you're doing like noir or you explicitly have a narrator, there's no way to like easily get that on the screen. And so you lose so much of the flavor. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice, it, it translates very well to do the screen um, where it's like, okay, like, like you're having a conversation with uh, effectively yourself, even though, you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's important to point out to um, someone who's never like engaged with this media, like the, the, the animals are, are, are both part of you and apart from you. Like they're not, they're not just something that you can command. They have their own, they have their own minds and it's like a two way link. And it seems like in some ways, like they're, yeah. they don't seem to be exactly telepathic, although they, they also seem to share experience in, in some way it's Pullman does a really good job of, um, you you come away with a very strong impression. Like I, I feel like someone could give me ten statements about Damon's, and I'd be able to be like, "Yep, these five are correct, and these five are not." Even though like none of them would be explicitly stated. Like I, it, right. it struck me, for instance, in the show that they uh, they went out of their way to to say like, "Oh, Damon's can't get very far away from their person normally," and I, I feel like in the in the book, I feel like they. It would, something like that would be much more smoothly introduced. Yes, totally. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't remember that even being like explicitly stated in the books, but it's just sort of inferred through the story and through the experience of following the these characters. It's in the book, if I remember correctly. It's only mentioned as a an, sort of like an anomaly when they uh. when Lyra ends up with Miss Coulter and her, um, her demon, which is, I, if I'm remembering correctly, it's a golden furred monkey. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Joe, they used like a, I think it's a snub nosed monkey. I actually looked it up. Yeah. Uh, oh, cool. I thought, yeah. I was kind of wondering, I, it, it kind of looks like a tiny orangutan almost, but I know that that's not right. 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 But um, so in in the book, it's actually only mentioned as sort of like an anomaly where Pantalaemon actually uh, is disturbed by the fact and and conveys that disturbance to Lyra and say in saying that you know he's she's she's without a daemon you know where where's the daemon and for him that would be like he's he's seen you know he's watching somebody that's dead get up and walk around. Mm -hmm. I yeah, and, and um, you know I, I think it's important to 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 point out like the you know I, I, I part of the the log line of this podcast is you know is talking about the way that uh you know this this media both both caters to and challenges children and I think that this series as a whole especially the books um has an enormous amount of faith in you know young younger readers to to pick up on the subtleties and specifics of the universe it, like 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 Ben mentioned it it does not hold your hand it really just throws you headlong into this world um and it does it does this thing that's that's very hard to pull off i, I in, in my opinion in in fiction but when it works it's like it's it's 
masterful. Um, and Pullman does a terrific job of it, which is like you you mention a concept in passing without explaining it, but by the second or third time that it's mentioned, you've given the reader enough context that you're like, oh, okay, like I understand what this is. But you can look through the book and you'll you'll never see like a character do the the as the um as as Carlo called it the as you know Bob like it's and Pullman is really really good at doing this and he does it pretty consistently throughout the the entire series and especially for you know an ostensibly YA series I, I'm really impressed at the you know at, at basically at, at kids ability to uh, to pick up on these things and also kind of disappointed at when you get to the adaptations they're like, oh, we're making these more for adults now, especially with the HBO show, and they have less faith in like adult <laughs> viewers in a visual medium go along than like you know ch- children in a written medium, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to mention one one other thing uh, about the Damons is the fact that um, for those people who haven't read it, the Damons change. If you are still a child, you haven't sort of matured or reached puberty yet. The de- the the demons ha- are shifting; they can change into different things. But once you become an adult and that threshold has been crossed, it settles into its its form. And the the thing that really sort of gave me a kick in the eyeballs, uh, so to speak, in the book was the fact that all of the forms for the settled daemons were symbols for these were just symbolic shorthand for sort of like basically what you can expect from x or y person the main characters have sort of more interesting ones but like the butlers and servants have dogs and granted there's some problems with that because then it sort of it sort of shows you that this is a deterministic universe where you are then that's your place but it's also it's also sort of just with that tiny that one little world building thing the daemons it's setting up for the reader this symbolism that's going to then really open up when you get to the the use of the alethiometer that, that lyra gets which is a fantastically amazing little MacGuffin that it's not a MacGuffin because she actually uses it, but it is fantastic as an idea. It's yeah. Yeah, It's it's very, it's very simple. Yeah. But, and it's also, it's also not overused. It's not like she goes through the story constantly consulting it. And like, it's, it's like obstruse and non simplistic. It's not just like, it's it's not a compass, even though you know they when the the I think even the um, the American release of of the first book I think was called the, yeah I the, read the, it the as compass. the golden uh, compass they I, they they misunderstood the American um pre, the American publishers misunderstood um and I think he was using a line from Milton mm-hmm. um, okay. where there's a lot about of that the, actually. The, the compasses that the that God uses to create the or something like that, and they made the connection that that's the alethiometer or or something like that. Oh, and, by the, and by the time they'd already hammered out all the details of the royalties and whatnot, 
Pullman thought it was way too impolite to really try to press the <laughs> at that point. You know, they're going to give me all this money, so okay. Whatever. Call it a so Philip, yeah, but like so he's, but, he's, no, he's, he's no Alan Moore, I guess. <laughs> Well, you know, he was. Uh, I'm sure that he did. He did actually uh, try to correct them, but when I guess they showed him, you know, like what the deal was, he's like, "Okay, it's fine." <laughs> it's the first so, book, you know. Was it like a nautical compass in the original reference, or like like, like a like a drafting compass? Sort of no, thing? no. Think of think of the uh, Blake uh, paintings. Mm-hmm. Where you see God sort of like crouched down and using like an actual like geometric compass. Okay, yeah. Um, and and yeah. obviously Blake is using because that that's one thing that we should probably point out. His dark materials is actually a line from Milton mm-hmm. um, from Paradise Lost, and this is more or less a reimagining of Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that. Uh, it's sort of dealing with there's a Lucifer character in it and trying to, you know, sort of strain against the bounds of, uh, of the prison he perceives and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that this is a good, I think this is a good opportunity to, to frame the experience of, um, you know, reading the, the book versus the way that it's been translated um, at least into the HBO series, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about the uh, the Daniel Craig Nicole Kidman movie. Um, I heard it was bad, I, I, I so think, I didn't see it. Uh, yeah, it's so. It, I'll, I'll, I, my my summary of it would be: it's a very literal adaptation of the first book um, that chops off the the ending um, and. Also, it, like the production design is very good, but it's just kind of like a like a follow the numbers um, yeah. sort of movie. There's really there's not a whole lot to say about it. It's it's almost it's like a novelization of a book that was already a novel. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. It, it was sad because they uh, you you mentioned that it's Narnia for like budding atheists, and I was like, just I just looked it up, and I, it felt like they came out very at very um yeah. very close together. Uh, but no, Narnia actually came out in two thousand five, like the the witch, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie, um, came out in two thousand five, and this one came out in two thousand seven. But that may have given you know like whomever was um, paying attention because of all the themes regarding, you know, like anti-religion and anti specifically anti-organized religion. Um, it might've given him those groups enough lead time to really sort of try to muscle into whatever the production schedule was. Sadly, I don't know if that affected things or if, um, or if they just decided to self, uh, self-select out of certain things and uh yeah you're absolutely right kurt it it i went to go see it and it was like very much well we have a certain bullet points that we need to touch to get to the end of this movie and you know you just sort of check them off and it's sort of fun but it didn't really it didn't have the same impact as the book did and i was very disappointed and so I mean to be clear about the you know the impact of 
the book. And this is, you know, this is our last warning. You know, we're 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 gonna talk not about like the the all of the ending of the first book, but I I think you know it's a good point to start transitioning into talking about the TV series and the big difference between the TV series and reading the book is when you start reading the book, um, you know, as, as a kid or as a young adult, and I'll, I'll very briefly say that my, my experience was I was probably about 23 or 24 when I read this. Um, it was recommended to me uh, by an at-the-time friend um, in a World of Warcraft who said, hey, I think you would like this series. Uh, you should read it. And I was like, okay, sure. I, I trust your judgment on, you know, fiction. And I went and read it. And I had the ex- same experience that you did, Carla, where it immediately grabbed it. I just totally fell into it. I read all three books in like a week and a half. Uh, it just like blew me away. I, I, I don't know that I've ever been as engrossed in a, in a series. Um, but a big part of it is you start off reading it. And it just seems to be like a kind of, um, you know, science fiction fictiony alt history pulp adventure sort of where it's a girl going on a grand adventure and having hijinks um and then by the end of the first novel and beginning of the second it has turned into this dimension hopping like epic um like um it's it's hard to explain the sense of disorientation that you go through as a reader where the the book basically changes genres like you think it's one thing and you reach the end of the the first book and you're like oh my god there's other dimensions and characters are are going into them and that's like that's how the first book ends and it it i I, my my mind was blown and I, i can't even imagine reading this as a child and having like gotten comfortable with like okay, this is what the book's going to be like. I guess, this, you know, I'm, I'm reaching the end of the first book and literally in the closing pages, they're like, uh, BT dubs, there are other universes or, or other dimensions. Um, and also we're going to them. So let's, let's do that. And I, it's just, it's so well done. And the TV series kind of like front loads that it doesn't, it doesn't it does. do that reveal. You know, I was kind of wondering about that when I first started to watch the TV series because I kind of felt, I kind of remember, like, I don't remember a lot of the details of this because I went through puberty since I read it. It's been <laughs> so long. But um, that I I kind of remember it being a bit of a trickle. And I was like, I feel like the first few episodes are not going to have a lot of supernatural stuff that's going to get people to like understand what the show is, but they, they really front loaded it. And even, even with like the reveal of who her father is, you know, mm-hmm. like that was earlier, you know, like, I feel like that was, there was a total, you know, like, you know, Darth Vader moment kind of in the, you know, in like later in the uh, book. So it, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a different pace. It's, it's definitely a little bit of um it's a it's a bit of a wash in a certain sense in the sense that for instance i just like yesterday or today finished reading up to where the second episode gets to and there's some points where i understand and i think that the show did the right thing like for instance her finding out about the oblation board and, uh, you know, with the connection to the disappearances and whatnot um, is in the TV show, I felt was 
more, she was given more agency where she's actually seeking it out. Um, in the book, it actually happens that, uh, and it's super well done in the book, but I can see why in the, in the show you'd want to do it that way. It, it happens during the party, during the party that she's having. Um, one of the, there, there's like a, an actual church official at the party and, uh, she just basically, because that's the thing, um, Lyra's name is not a mistake. It's because she's a fantastic liar in yes. in the book. Um, in the show, I don't find it to be quite as prominent. Um, maybe it's because they want to, they 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 had questions about likability. Um, uh, you know. I, I could see them kind of yeah doing that because yeah I, I i kind of almost feel like i related more with her in the book probably because i was the same age that probably would be most of it but um that i like related yeah that yeah that you know that she was like a shitty uh, kid you know in some ways she would lie not, she would yeah, do what she not, yeah not only that but like whenever I, I hear someone like it makes me grit my teeth whenever someone in my presence says children never lie and you're like, are you fucking kidding? Oh me? my God. I can tell and you. you I, someone yeah. that tells me that does not remember being a child. <laughs> oh, they I haven't hung out with a three year old. Oh my I was, God. I was taught to tell the truth. You lie. Like you breathe air when you're a child, yeah. because why would you ever want to face consequences? You have to actually learn to face consequences and tell the truth. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe Kurt's different, but I, I was a liar. Dude. <laughs> no, no. I I I was a. So I I think that the the, the key is you know kids will kids learn to um, I think to 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 cope with or get through situations. Kids are very good at determining how to get through a situation or finding a way to get through it. Uh, but they're not good at planning for the future. So like kids are not usually very good liars, but they will absolutely. Like they're they I, I would almost describe them less as liars and more as like fabulists, where mm -hmm. like the 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 boundaries between fact and fiction are especially to a three year old where I, you know our 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 older daughter is is exactly three um and you know the 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 line between fact and fiction is very blurry for her where like she'll tell us something that she saw on a show as if it happened and I'm not sure if she's like telling a story or if she's just like like doesn't if to her it doesn't really make make a difference that it was it was a work of fiction um but what i would point out is you know i, I think that um it, it's exactly correct that lyra is very relatable and part of it is that her her ability to lie is not not at first a character flaw it is a power that she has and the book is very explicit about like this is an ability that you have that makes you special and different from other people and allows you to get through the world. And um, you know, I think it's really important to point out that probably the reason that this series got um, framed as a YA series is that it primarily does follow Lyra. And she is, I, I'm not sure exactly how old she is, maybe like 12 or 13 at the beginning yeah. of, the, of the first book. Um, and she is very much like her against the world. And the reason that she's able to do this is because she's able to to lie so well and it's not until later in the series that 
her being a liar becomes an accusation and something that's harmful and bad and not just like oh like you can you can just tell people whatever to get through these scenarios and I, but i i totally agree that the 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 book the 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 rather the hbo series is not um it's kind of portraying her as like a compulsive liar who just kind of says like nonsense that that um and she's only saying it to to miss coulter who immediately sees through it so it's not really effective in the same way that um the 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 book series representation is but so i i i want to rewind a little bit because we, we talked about the the question of um her her parents and um i i think that in the tv series you know it's pretty obvious right from the start um and so although they try to make it a gut punch when she finds out who her father is it really doesn't carry as much weight it's very well acted i I will say like they they convey it very well that like oh you've had a dad he's actually been around he's just hasn't had time for you um it's not as effective as reading it like i was kind of devastated reading it like it's you you kind of suspect it in even in the novel um but much later right it's much much later and it really hits that like this is a character that has been interacting with her and has been around and has never for a moment acted like a father and it really lands this punch of like you had a you had a father he kind of just didn't care like he kind of just doesn't seem interested in being a father and i think that's one of the reasons that this resonates so strongly with kids that it's a very honest depiction of like stuff that really sucks to a kid and it doesn't apologize i i guess for the like it doesn't make excuses I, for the characters it's like yeah i would i would say these that characters suck yeah no no definitely and I, I would say that that probably feeds into the major sort of behind the scenes theme if you have an absent deity you have an app that's the ultimate father figure asriel is essentially an absent father so it sort of all ties together it does. I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, totally. that. And well, the uh, thing that is like especially like cruel about it to this, you know, to this child is that, you know, he's kind of present. It's not that he is avoiding her. It's just that, you know, like, you know, it's not like he ran away forever. It's just like he's just he sees you, but it's like, I don't want to do that. You know, it's uh, I, you know, it's a, it would be a brutal, brutal realization to have. And and to be fair, like the only thing that Lyra wants to do is for is for is Azrael to take her to the north because that's the one thing she wants to do more than anything. And he's correct in telling her, no, that's not really a place for you. But also, he's not around. And I was going to circle back real quick that the the ability and, and the fact that she has sort of like lackadaisical war wardens uh, in the in the in Jordan College in the body of the master and all of the you know staff um would perfectly un like that would perfectly come together uh that she's a wild she's she's really sort of a wild child who's been sort of kind of socialized, but not quite. So the fact that not one person is really sort of observing her and caring for her and sort of bringing her to account 
lets her sort of wiggle out of things easier. So she's able to develop this talent of lying easily to just, well, you know, I don't really want to take, you know, like there's a, there's a, a thing in the book where it says that, you know, she would take classes with this or that basically teaching assistant until, you know, she would forget to show up one day and much to the teaching assistant's relief, you know, some random subject too. It didn't really, there was no set curriculum for her. So she was sort of left to her own devices. You know, and it's, it's interesting that you point that out because it made me realize something about, about why the series I think resonates so strongly with, with kids is there's, there's a tradition. Um, I, I, I guess it's still going on now. Um, but it used to be very, very popular in like the forties and fifties of the kind of like unattended child adventure. Um, uh, and you, there were, there were numerous like pulp novels. Um, I, I read one actually when I, when I, when I was like 12 or 13, that, that my dad, uh, got me, that was from like the, the late thirties, early forties called the long trains roll. That was about, um, like a young boy who, uh, stows away on like a freight train and just kind of winds up like living in a train yard as like an, an, an unattended child. And the way that, that the His Dark Materials series starts off, you're totally right, is very much with Lyra as like an unattended child. And um, as a, you know, as a kid reading this, I think it would be both very appealing and also like scary in a way that depictions of that often aren't. Like it's often idealized. Like, oh, like what do yeah. kids want? They want to be away from from you know parental figures but ultimately like especially in northern lights shows the the downside of that in a way that i think you know every child at a certain point is going to feel ignored by their parents that's i i think is just like a reality of growing up and it might be it might be something big and like like devastating or it might just be a split second where your parents are having like a phone conversation and you want to show them something that you saw or found that like is utterly inconsequential to them but important to you like i think it's just it's a very universal experience and it it really draws a line under that of like like okay yeah it's cool to be on your own but also like kind of a bummer right yeah well you know it's um it's yeah it's uh the whole like sort of orphan kid narrative too is this is and sort of her being the like chosen one i think also i mean that's sort of like implied you know it's like why is she so special within the show but that there's there's a that's a that's a common trope in science fiction and especially things that involve chill uh, children and i think it all kind of ties into with in this show and series with the um, uh, Damons because it's kind of about like as you become older sort of when you are kind of leaving childhood becoming like a teen or going through puberty you sort of feel yourself becoming like this is I'm a this is what I am you know and that kind of um, idea of sort of being an orphan and that like sort of feeling lost I don't know it's um it's a it's it it's very much about a particular time in a child's life too. And and to be clear, um, that is a very unsubtle thing that the daemons represent 
is the <laughs> end of that flexibility of youth of like you have you have finished the kind of grace period of childhood where you can keep telling yourself i'm going to be whatever i'm going to be i can do anything i can be anything at some point you you become the thing or become the person that you are and uh you know i i don't entirely agree with the notion that it's deterministic i i I sort of feel like you could also read it as you know the the form that your daemon takes is is maybe in some ways the the also the the person that you have have grown into um and not just like the person you are destined to 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 be um but there is that sense i think especially as an as an older teenager um of like you know okay fun time's done at some point whether you want to or not like you're eventually going to be 40 and you you will have a life that is somewhat more permanent than it is when you're 14 and you can just you know decide to remake who you are over the summer um and i th- i think that's something that spoke to me very much when i was reading it and even again like i was in my early 20s i was really going through that that experience of like oh at some point i have to become a person and not just like this like ephemeral ball of interests like i have to devote time to a thing and that means not devoting time to other things and that really that that really struck me reading this i think sure so um i want to uh i want to shift totally over into the the tv show a bit um i'm I'm curious to hear y'all's uh impressions of i i guess um i i had a big change of heart between the first and second episodes i i would love to hear um, whether you all went through a similar experience, is kind of how how did you feel uh, watching you know episode one and then watching episode two um, go coming into it as as book book readers, I guess. I mean, I I, I think I, I'd mentioned it earlier um, about the first episode where it spent about I th- I didn't time it or anything like that, but it felt like a good fifteen minutes, sort of like establishing stuff that I felt could have been um, been just left and started where the book starts. Uh, I mean, I, I got where, why they made the decisions they made, but I, I, I it, you know, when I started the audiobook and s- sort of like immediately fell into it, it was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it definitely starts with Lyra sneaking into the retiring room and that's your, your, window into the entire thing why didn't they start the show there because really i I think that the the source material is strong enough that if they had sort of adapted it um perhaps with a bit more care they could have started right there and it would have been stronger for it that being said i think it was at the end of the first episode where um, they sort of accelerated some points in the book um, and they they sort of give the ticking time clock uh, ticking time bomb to to have Lyra either leave with Mr. Coulter or you know or stay forever, you know, that type of thing, which was sort of silly, but I, I understand that they needed to you know get things moving along so that she goes to London. And when they closed with uh, with her friend Roger, who she's been looking for, um, and she ostensibly goes with Miss Coulter uh, because she 
justifies it. Well, she's going to London. She said that maybe you know the gobblers might have taken Roger to London. Um, so then maybe she'll help me find him. And they cut to Roger being in the hold of the airship. That was like okay, sort of a it's sort of like a a bit of a cheap move, but I, I'm I'm rolling with it. And and by the time the second episode starts, um, I found it much more. It moved much more, much quicker. Um, sure. The only the only thing that sort of took made me take a step back was the the whole idea of. Like we get that small aside where the um, the church enforcer is like st steps sideways into what seems to be our world, and I was like, okay, that seems a little early for this reveal. Yeah, but I that, also I was like almost yeah, like right. I I didn't even realize that that's what was happening at first. It seems so early to me. Like I sort of had to like step back for a second, honestly, with with that. But um, yeah, that's that's something. Um, that character is Lord Boreal, who I didn't really remember from from the books. Uh, I believe he doesn't show up until like the second book. It's a, like a, a much later character. Um, and yeah, my my mind was kind of blown. Um, when they when they did that and and in a way in a good way because I was kind of excited to I I had very much the same the same reaction to episode one as as uh, as Carlo did where I was like okay like they're doing a straight adaptation and they're doing it in my opinion not super well like it it looked beautiful um, but everything felt very obvious. Like Lord Azrael at that that scene with Lord Azrael at the very beginning where he drops her off as a baby is like, well, clearly he's her dad. Like, yeah, it seems so. Yeah, and it it honestly just didn't even seem necessary. Like, just have her like be like, someone say you're like an orphan living in the college. Done. You know, yeah. like you don't have to have the whole shot. But that that decision to to massively reorder the reveal of the concept of the books, I was actually kind of excited about because now I don't know what's happening anymore. And so now right. it's no longer, now it's no longer a word, a, like word for word adaptation that's failing. Now it's something that is at the very least succeeding or failing on its own merits. And not just as whether or not it accurately depicts my own internal vision of this book, which is an frankly, is an impossible standard to, to meet, whether it's a good or or a poor adaptation. I definitely think it was trending towards being like an overly verbose, overly explanatory, like borderline condescending uh, explanation. There were there were a few moments in particular where they just had very long exposition scenes that really weren't important. Like you didn't need to know. And I, I still think that the, the first episode could have been really improved a lot. Um, but maybe people are just impatient. I, I, it's, it's possible that that's like a specific decision they made for a very specific reason of like, well, if we don't give people the goods, they're, they're going to wander off. Um, it's definitely my, possible. That, that, that was my concern about this as a TV series in uh, general, because my uh, wife like kind of watched the first episode with me, sort of. Um, and uh, I was like concerned that she would be like, why are you even watching this? Like it's taking like, what's the big deal? Okay. They have animals, you know, but like sort of adding in some of these other levels helps. 
I, I was just going to say that one of the things that really worked, I, I, I may be blurring this together. It's in the first episode, right? Where they have the, the Egyptian um, ceremony for the settling yes. of the. Yes. Of the that's, that's the first episode. Yeah. I found that that was a perfect use of yes, a, totally. a scene that is not anywhere in the books but gives me a lot of information and it's not really, it's not trying to explain anything. It's just letting me sort of immerse myself. Oh, these are these people and they have this ritual and Oh, cool. Look, they're throwing like little, is it they're throwing little silver coins in this thing. And then of course, yes, it's they're They're sort of all donating silver so they can get his little uh, settling ring in the shape of a hawk, which is very cool and everything. It's like a nice little touch. And I found that us that, a, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. They showed us a uh, Egyptian bar uh, mitzvah. It was wonderful. Yes, yes. I, I, I would probably say that that's hey, exactly what it is. Let's talk uh, about the, the Egyptians, um, or I think that the TV show calls them the Egyptians, even, or at least some promotional material, I think, did, um, because it's definitely. It's an aspect of the books, and I think you can really tell where they are struggling to make it work in the TV show. So to be perfectly clear, in the books, the Egyptians are pretty, in my opinion, stereotypical Roma, or I guess you could argue that they're travelers, um, and their depiction is very tied to a stereotypical depiction of you know, Roma or travelers. And you can tell, I think, immediately, if you've read the books, in watching the TV show, they are trying to, to create a, a, a different identity um, for them, where they seem to be just a much more generalized working class um, yeah. traveling community, but doesn't lean on any, frankly, racist you know, de depictions of, of Roma. Um, but in my opinion, the... The, the the concept just isn't super strong and i yeah. i did like the function of that 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 um egyptian bar mitzvah as as you called it but i really didn't feel like i got a strong sense of who they were as a group they just kind of seemed like a bunch of people in like a weird warehouse somewhere so i i feel like they made the correct decision of d racistifying um this this group from the books but at the same time i feel like they needed to put a little bit more thought into okay then then who is this group of people that is pretty central at least to the the events of of the first book and i don't think they totally pulled that off i i think that they were just going for in in the series uh i think they were just going for sort of a very simple shorthand as sort of like an underclass yeah, um, and and they sort of a a diverse underclass at that. Um, I was just reading today that um, there is there there might be some problematic aspects because for me it would have been interesting to actually go even lean further into the the book because I as I as I understand it I mean what I've read so far is that you know Pullman in the books at least did a pretty good job like they're the the egyptians in the book are not uh they're not behind anything they're not up to any you know like they're they're actually good people 
they're you know they are Roma for that world, but um, in the series it would have been it would have been interesting because the the fact that they're the target for the gobblers and that the the Egyptians have lost more children um, to the gobblers than anyone else in like even amongst like servants and and regular people, then sort of sets up that they're further marginalized and therefore predated upon, uh, yeah, which is sure. an interesting concept to introduce into what is, again, ostensibly a young adult novel where it's sort of subtly, it's not trying to hit anyone over the head with it, but it's showing you, yes, they, they have actually mobilized mainly because they have realized or perceived a definite threat to their community. Um, and in the show, it would have been interesting to see them lean into that and actually hire like more Roma actors or something to that effect. Um, so that it could have been much more present. I, that being said, I don't know, you know, what the decisions were behind the scenes. Um, but it would have been interesting to see that because then it shows you that, yes, they stole, you know, they, they took Roger, but they took Roger because the Roma are already sort of on alert in Jordan, like around Jordan college, you know? Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. The, um, yeah, the uh, use of the Egyptians as like a symbol for, I mean, they're like the proletariatized. I mean, I guess they're not proletariat cause they're like nomads, right? They don't really, they sort of travel throughout. They, they would be I, like below proletariat because they right, don't actually, yeah. They're not necessarily workers, um, but uh, I mean, I'm, you know what? I'm sure they work. I'm sure they have industry. I don't know all about the industry of the Egyptians. I'm sorry, <laughs> I cannot do a I cannot do a, a good Marxist class a, a analysis on it. But what I can say is that it is it is like it's a great touch, and I think it's a part of the things that um, I like about the uh, series. That yeah, that um, it shows how those who are deemed the least in society will be the most, you know, will be the most ek exploited, especially their children. And that, um, the sort of use of that and the, you know, the intensity, I mean, that I feel about the idea, I don't know, just like, I mean, it's probably bad that I feel m more intensely about a child being exploited than an adult, but it's a very visceral uh, thought and uh, theme for the uh, show. There, there is definitely an, an element of class analysis, I think, even um, in the original, you know, in the original books, where like there is a very two worlds um, upstairs, downstairs depiction early on in the first book. And you, you, you kind of it kind of goes away um, by the end of, of the first book, just as Lyra is kind of outward bound away from from civilization. But yeah. the 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 juxtaposition of Lyra being with Miss Coulter going to these like high society events. And then when she leaves that world and kind of leaves the, the embrace of the upper class in pursuit of, you know, her, her explicitly like working class friend who has, as you say, has been taken and nobody else seems to actually really care um, yeah. in, in a way that they absolutely care if, if something happened to her. Um, is very immediate and noticeable and poignant, and I, th I think it's one of those things that would that would strike a a child pretty 
immediately. Um, Absolutely. I, I mean, I, it, I want it, to yeah. uh, kind of like throw a hand grenade in, in, into this discussion, which is I, I kind of feel like if I have a big criticism of the show, it's that they've taken something that is extremely evocative for um, younger readers or younger media consumers. And um, rather than try to maintain that, they've kind of like Game of Thronesified it a little bit. So that I think the intent is really feels like they wanted to make it so that an adult could watch this and not be like, why am I watching this show about a little kid? (laughs) Yeah, they're there. I mean, you want to talk about though, like this is a structural problem with making the best adaptation of this kind of show is that to, to get the special effects and the sort of scale, they would have to think about it as, well, we have to appeal to a broader market, right? So of course they're going to put it through the game of thrones filter and they'll make it a little bit more hbo i guess it's technically it's like a bbc show mm-hmm. but you know like you know yeah it's um the the uh the target audience does feel very different than it did for the book seems a waste because to be honest with you like uh i was just looking up the um the actor's name, uh, Daphne Keene, mm-hmm. who was, uh, I thought she was fantastic in Logan. Like, she's a great actor. She's fantastic. She's, she's really like, good. She's really good. Um, and I, I don't think that they really, they didn't trust her enough to carry it. And she she probably could all by herself. With Yeah, and, and in, in the book, the character of Lyra is so of and present and and immediate I, I remember i remember complaining a little bit about it as i was reading it that she's constantly panicking and talking to to pan and being like oh pantalamon how are we going to get out of this oh no like and but the reality is like in terms of realistic depictions of children like she is a pretty realistic depiction of a child going through traumatic events and she yes. always feels on the razor's edge of collapsing. And I think that's one of the things that makes this this series, this book, so evocative. And yeah, they absolutely don't give her all that to work with. Like she's a in the show, she's she's more passive, she's more confident when she's doing something and stuff is is a much bigger sense of like stuff happening to her than in a, a child like fighting back against the entire world. It, it's definitely I, you, the way, the way you put that Carlo of like, it's kind of like a loss uh, that they did this with something that's so powerful to kids. I, I absolutely, I agree 100%. I, I think it's a, it's, I understand why they did it, but I really feel like this should be catering to a younger audience th- than it is. That said, uh, again, you know, I, I went from being very down on this, to being like, actually, like I'm kind of psyched about this, but I'm not psyched about it in the same way that that I was the books. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, like just thinking about how she uh, was able to convey, like wordlessly in Logan, <laughs> like fury, disappointment, like just all those emotions just roiling right under the surface, and you see it, and it's such really a lost opportunity in the series that they didn't really think that she could pull it off. Um, but that being said, I'm still, like you said, I think I'm, I'm starting to vibe with it. 
it, it started I, I started to get into the same wavelength as the as the show and unless they really uh, sort of screw the screw up something along the way I think I'm gonna be in it I'm excited for the um uh, uh, the armored bears I'm excited yeah. for that I have to say when I, I I was reminded of armored like they they mentioned it in the first episode and I was like oh yeah. That's probably another reason why I like this when I was a kid. It was just like a big, tough animal that was like nice. It was great. And there, there is, um, it, it's worth pointing out that the, the, the first book is overall pretty calm. Um, but there is, the, the description of the bears fighting that, that happens later on when you encounter the bears is pretty brutal. Um, and like visceral, and that is one thing that the 2007 movie did did keep. Where when they fought, it was funny because that movie was much more for like children, basically, and it still had an incredibly violent like bear versus bear fight that happened. Um, These are kids growing up in the mid to uh, thousands. The Iraq War was on TV. Yeah. You know, shit was uh, violent. So. I think they were also chasing after, like, even Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was two years before, was still trying to be the next Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. They, they, were, they were really looking for that same sort of reaction from people. And now it's weird that we're, everyone's trying to be uh, the next Game of Thrones, too. Right. Very so, different direction. So suffice to say, it sounds like we we're we're all you know feeling relatively good about about the TV series now, although maybe not to the extent or not necessarily in the same way. But um, so I I always like to close out these discussions uh, by kind of asking, what do you think that a a kid would get from you know consuming this media? And I, I I'm going to say we can mostly limit this to to the book because again I, I really don't think that the tv show is really designed for kids i, I think for it's hard to say not having only seen you know the first couple episodes but i, I think for for a teenager it'll, it'll be fine I, I i might hesitate for much younger than that just just because there's it it, it front loads as we have said a lot of stuff but snake was kind of was kind of freaky i don't know yeah like i i could see being like scared by that if I was well like, i, I know, mean when, when, when he kills yeah, the, uh, the journalist yeah. was was pretty brutal in a way that the, the books don't get until later. So right. yes, the monkey, sure. uh, Miss Coulter's demon is possibly even more disturbing in this yeah. TV series than it is in the books. And it was pretty bad in the books because like, I'm not, I'm not squeamish. I I'll read horror and all sorts of other stuff, but like that monkey just, the something about it it's just awful it, it is yeah it's it's pretty it's they do they make they make miss Coulter seem very evil um in a way that they didn't in the 2007 movie which which you know kudos kudos to them um for doing that but uh so so ben uh thoughts on kind of closing thoughts on on this yeah, you know, I I think especially if you're thinking about a kid kind of in the age, I mean, if you're, okay, here's the test. Are you going to get your, is the kid interested in Harry Potter? 
If the kids are interested in Harry Potter, I don't know what your guys' opinion is on Harry Potter. I'm sure it's fine. I saw all the movies. They're fine. Whatever. I think this is like a much better kind of thing. Just for maybe a kid who is maybe a little bit more rebellious or, you know, or like likes to think sort of, you know, about like authority and power maybe, you know, I, I mean, I, I really loved it when I was, when I was a, a kid and I think it can sort of, um, a lot of the like fantasy metaphors, I think are probably actually pretty healthy for kids to kind of understand things like, you know, I mean, it's not explicit, but it's like to understand things like gender and sexuality and puberty and getting older and sort of different stages in your life. I, I think it's a compelling thing. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's well put. And yeah, the the the, the notion of like the transitions in life, I, I it's very unsubtle in a lot of ways, but um I, I think it really just works. And, you know, we haven't said a lot about the writing. I, I think that Pullman is a really good um, writer, both like structurally and in terms of like conveying like a, like a, a, an emotional inner life to these characters. Like they all feel very lived in to, to the point that like aspects of the depictions of Miss Coulter, Lord Asriel and, and Lyra, um, and even the fact that like Pan is a very distinct character from Lyra, it's all very well done. Um, I, I think it is a very good gateway um, between like stuff that is written for kids and stuff that is really challenging um, the, the 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 level of media that a growing child can can consume. And, and yeah, I think everything you said about like the kind of criticisms of authority then there's a lot of about like the nature of belief there's a lot about like the the metaphysics of being and and you know the relation between science and religion is all very is all handled very well um it's really not it's not as heavy-handed as it sounds when you're describing it it's it's in my opinion as a very deft touch and i i think it it will I think it honestly could help kids who are really grappling with their relation to these things and where they fit into not necessarily their life, but into like the the world at large. So I, I think it's still uh, probably a pretty great read for, you know, like 11 to 13, depending upon the 11 to 13 year old. Hey, if Carlo. you got a, a teen, maybe watch the TV show. With yeah, them. there you go. Carlo. So I would probably say, this exists on a continuum right after if you're if your kids were reading say a series of unfortunate events or they liked the netflix show these books are probably for them uh yeah, that makes sense it's it's because mainly the theme one of the major things in uh a series of unfortunate events is that the 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 kids sort of have to deal with it's another child in peril type of story adventure uh and they have to learn that adults are not really to be trusted and they have to sort of rely on their own like there are adults they mean well and they're going to try to help but they may be bad at it and i think that this sort of exists on that same continuum just a little bit further on the pathway um i also find it a, a sort of ironic in a certain way that 
this is possibly one of the best series of books that depicts sort of like at the end of it, a metaphor for original sin and the striving between um, sort of immortality and knowledge that is contained within like the basic book of Genesis. Uh, and it's written by someone who is a professed agnostic and or atheist or both. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, I, 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 I just love the, like sort of going back to some of the like original English literature kind of novel, you know, like going that far back in the tradition is, uh, it's it's just like it's not a thing you expect from a kid science science fiction fantasy series, right? And like the whole concept of like you know what differentiates uh, a person from you know what what is innocence? When does childhood end? Um, you know what if what if you know not only not if what if God doesn't exist? What if he might actually not like you very much. What happened then? So, you know, these are all things that are sort of contained within this series. Um, and I, I just think Lyra is just a fantastic uh, sort of her hero in, in, in all of the books. She's great. And uh, it, the way she's able to sort of navigate through all that and, you know, sort of, like even at the end of the first book where she handles like this massive betrayal, she sort of dusts herself off and picks herself up. And that's sort of, she's resilient, resourceful. I mean, what, what else do you need? Well put. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a good thing to, to close on. We've already gone a little bit long, but can I, can I steal maybe 15 or 20 minutes more of, of your gentleman's time uh, for the spoiler space uh, discussion? Go ahead. Afterwards? Uh, so let's, uh, let's kind of close things off and we'll, we'll wrap up with, uh, let's talk about where people can uh, find Ben and Carlo's work out there on the great World Wide web. Uh, ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about Unpopular Front and, and where people can find you? Sure, yeah. Uh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Marxist Manny. Uh, I do a podcast called Unpopular Front. I, I sort of do, um, I guess they're, the genre on YouTube is called video essays, but I do them mainly audio. So I don't know, audio essays or monologues, but I also do interviews. And, you know, I uh, try to talk about, you know, how we live in a society <laughs> and um <laughs> you know um but you know from uh a uh fun but not too uh flippant sort of leftist socialisty approach uh like to talk a lot about kind of trying to go deep into some issues and sort of how the systems uh uh interact and how history can inform uh, our worldview uh, has had some great guests in the past, like uh, Katie Halper, Liza Featherstone, um, uh, Ben uh, Burgess is a regular guest. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. And uh, I, I will personally vouch for, for it, especially if you are into 
kind of leftist political analysis. Uh, to, it's it's a good show. Uh, it's good listening and has good guests. So uh, big ups to you on that, Carlo. Where can people find your stuff, Carlo? Um, I am. I have some fiction out there in the world. Um, uh, my most recent piece that you can read uh, it was published at uh, Uncanny Magazine. Uh, it's called uh, "This Is Not My Adventure." Um, uh, ben, uh, this is a sort of a Narnia, a nod to Narnia. So you, oh yeah, to, uh, <laughs> having read all of the books, oh. I was required to. I, I honestly, I, I tried to revisit them recently, and I just sort of couldn't. Anyway, um, <laughs> it, it doesn't have a lot of the religious uh, themes in that story, so it's rather short. So, um, also, I have uh, some of my previously published stuff can be found at curiousfictions.com uh, under my name, Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez, and then um, uh, I'll. I also have something that should be upcoming January of next year that should be coming out at Beneath Ceaseless Skies. And uh, I blog intermittently at uh, alineofink.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much to the both of you for coming on to the show to uh, talk about His Dark Materials. It's been a real blast. Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna break and then uh, continue on to the bonus episode where we will talk about uh, the real deep stuff. So uh, thanks again for listening to Parents Just Don't Understand and have a great evening. Cheers. Cheers.